Thanks for listening to the Sermons Podcast by Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Harrisville, Pennsylvania. Our purpose is to spread the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about us, check us out at harrisvilleopc.org. pleasure to be back with you all again. Uh, Katrina sends her apologies. She's down with a heavy cold and didn't want to infect anyone. And we're, we're flying to uh, London tomorrow night to see a friend and, and spend a week at home. So she wanted to be as well as possible for that. Uh, let's uh, have a word of prayer and then turn to the reading and the preaching of God's word. O Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are a God of all grace and mercy. We do thank you, Lord, for uh, your condescension in the incarnation, that you sent your only Son to take our flesh to himself and enter into the very depths of human existence. We praise you, Lord, for the miracle of the birth of the Christ child, and we pray this evening that as we come to reflect upon that miracle, we might see contained therein the answer to the greatest problems and enigmas of life. For we pray these things in the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, I want to read the, uh, from verses uh, 22 to verse uh, 35, uh, the famous encounter between Simeon, Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Praise God for his holy word. I want to reflect this evening on this encounter in the temple, which in many ways uh, offers us in microcosm, in miniature form, so many pointers to the riches of the gospel as a whole. Before we come, though, to the specific events, I just want to draw your attention to, to the context 
in which this takes place. And the context, I think, really touches on, on two things. There's the place in which the event takes place, and there is the person who witnesses to the Christ at this point. The place is, of course, the temple. Uh, the temple is the centre of God's historic presence with his people, or has been at least since the time of Solomon down to this moment. The temple was, of course, destroyed by the Babylonians in 586, but it was rebuilt by returning exiles later that century. And the ark, when Solomon built, the temple when Solomon built, it was the place where the ark of the covenant was placed. And the ark was the place of God's special presence with his people. Now you might say, is it not the case that God is present everywhere? Is God not present in South America at the same time as he's present in the ark in the temple? And that's true, but the presence of God in the ark was a special presence. And we can all understand how we sometimes use the word present uh, in different ways. You know, one can be present physically with somebody, for example, but tapping away on your cell phone, your smartphone. Perhaps your wife, and this would never be said to me, of course, but perhaps your wife says to me, you know, you're not listening to me, it's as if you're not here. You're sort of present there, but you're not actually present, you're not engaged. God is present all over the world. All things live, move, and have their being in God. But he's specially present, or was specially present, in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. We might say that that's where God had chosen to be present with his people as their God, as the God of the covenant and the God of promise. So the temple was a very special place and it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. It was rebuilt, as I said, by exiles returning later that century. And then it was renovated shortly before the events being described here, around about 20 BC. Herod the Great, the Herod, incidentally, who authorizes the, the butchering, the massacre uh, of the innocents after the birth of Christ. Herod the Great has the temple renovated. And it's that temple that provides the, the physical context for what's taking place here. And that's important. Because, of course, one thing that will become clear in the gospel accounts in the New Testament is Jesus is the new temple. If the temple was the place where God dwelt with his people, if the temple was, if you like, God with us in the Old Testament, then that role will be taken over by Christ in the New. Even the name that's sometimes given to him, Emmanuel, means God with us. It points us to the connection between the temple and the Christ. So that's the place. If you like, it's an ideal place for somebody to recognize the incarnate Christ. It's the best place to do that. Second part of the context is the person, Simeon. We don't know a lot about Simeon. We're told that he was a righteous and devout man. Uh, we might summarize that by saying, you know, Simeon's obviously, he's a godly man, we would say. Of course, by saying that, we don't mean that he was without sin, that he was somehow sinlessly perfect. But he's a godly person. We use the term that way ourselves quite often. We might point to somebody in the church as an example and say, that person's a very godly person. We don't mean that they're without sin, that they have no need of Jesus as their saviour. 
probably meaning that their, their thoughts and their life is ordered, pointing towards God in godliness. Simeon is a man who trusts the Lord for his salvation. And what's special about Simeon is that the Lord has revealed to him, and we're not told how the Lord has revealed to him this thing, but the Lord has revealed to him that he won't die before he sees the Christ child. Now, we don't know how long Simeon has been waiting for that revelation. My instincts... And again, there's nothing in the text that sort of would, would necessarily require you to believe this, but my instinct is it's been a long time. I just feel that this has been revealed to this man sometime previously, months, more likely I feel years. Imagine what it must have been like that day to walk into the temple, led there by the Spirit, and after the days, months, years of waiting... This humble couple come into the, church, into the temple with this small child and he realises that that's the moment. That's the moment that he's been waiting for, for all this time. This is a moment, if you like, of, of stunning drama. Stunning drama and delight for this man. So that's the context then. It's the ideal place for this to take place. And the man who's going to recognize the Christ child has been waiting for this moment for some time. What can we say then about the, the encounter? Well, I want to just draw out a few points here. The first thing uh, I want to draw your attention to is that Simeon does indeed recognize the child. You might say, well, yeah, but that's what the text says. Well, yes, but think about it for a moment. It's pretty amazing that he recognizes that this child is the Christ. We might say in some ways that the Christ is remarkably hidden at this point. First of all, we know from the fact that Mary and Joseph offer uh, two turtle doves or young pigeons uh, for the law, uh, for, the, for the child, as the sort of the sacrifice for the child. Well, those are the sacrifices of poor people. The law has these different requirements and the law is very gracious, we might say, towards those who are economically disadvantaged. So the fact that they're offering this particular sacrifice indicates that they're kind of pretty low down the food, economic food chain. It's not a couple coming in dressed beautifully, looking ostentatious. It's not a striking couple it's a very nondescript, poor and humble couple. If they were wealthier, they'd offered a, they would have offered a lamb. They offer a couple of birds. They're poor. And yet still, Simeon sees through this poverty, through this outward humility, to the reality of God revealed in the Christ child. Talking of the child, of course, he's a small baby talked a few moments ago about how God, of course, is, is present everywhere. God is a magnificent God. We read in the Old Testament about no man shall see the face of God and live. Even Moses on the mountain was hidden in that cleft so that he could just see the, sort of the back parts of God as he shot past him on the face of the mountain. God is glorious. And yet this man recognizes in this very weak infant the coming of God in incarnate form. 
It's remarkable, isn't it? That God's revelation here is deeply hidden. Deeply hidden in the poverty of this couple and in the smallness and fragility of this child's flesh. I had the pleasure over Christmas of seeing my granddaughter. She's now almost two years old. But it's going to be at least another 16 years before she's remotely independent. She's still tiny and very vulnerable. Here, Simeon recognizes the coming of the great sovereign and mighty God in the humble flesh of a tiny child. Of course, we'll see this contrast between, we might say, the greatness of God and the smallness of Christ and the poverty of Christ throughout the gospel stories. How many times in the gospels do the people get angry with Christ because he does not act in the way they expect him to act? They're looking for somebody to overthrow the Romans. And yet they get this itinerant, homeless preacher. Think about his death on the cross. Think of the mockery of the soldiers, the religious leaders, and even the first thief. The one can perhaps feel some sympathy for a man who's dying in agony, not to have all of his theology clear in his head. The weakness of the cross. What does Paul say of that? He says it's foolishness to Greeks and an offence to Jews. The hiddenness of God under the flesh, the weakness of the flesh of Christ will be a constant of his gospel reality. So why is the child not an offence to Simeon? Why does he see the truth even as it is hidden? If you or I had been in the temple that day with Simeon, we'd have laughed at him, I'm sure. Ridiculous. That this child of these poor parents is the meaning of history. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, we're told in the text, of course, that Simeon is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's been revealed to him before that he will not die before he sees the Christ child. He's led to the temple that day by the Holy Spirit. And we know elsewhere, from elsewhere in the New Testament the, the task of the Holy Spirit is to point to the Christ. The Spirit draws attention not to himself, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the disciples at Pentecost. When the Spirit comes, they don't talk about the Spirit. They talk about the Christ. Luke is interested in his gospel very much in the role of the Spirit as a spotlight pointing to Christ. And that seems to be happening here. But I want to suggest there's likely a very human side to this as well. We know that God uses means. Very rarely, I think, does God simply beam knowledge into somebody's head. God typically uses means. Luke himself is a great demonstration of this. I won't read it to you now, but if you read the first few verses in his gospel, uh, you know, it warms my heart as I'm trained, you know, my training as a historian. Uh, Luke lays out his historical method there. He's consulted documents. He's talked to witnesses. Luke has done historical research. His gospel is inspired. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have to do the grunt work of the ordinary historian. 
Getting his evidence together. Making sense of what's gone on. Framing a narrative. Almost certainly Luke will have talked to Mary. When you read the, the, the book of Luke, there are some things described there that surely only Mary could have told him. He must have done his research. God uses earthly means. I think there's a clue in the text here that there's more going on Simeon than just knowledge being beamed into his mind. He talks about consolation and comfort. And that is language drawn from Isaiah. Go and look at Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 60. You will find language there that Simeon echoes here. Isaiah also is a bit like Simeon in some ways in that Isaiah points typically towards expecting the unexpected, we might say. Remember the servants of Isaiah 53, outwardly despicable. I would suggest Simeon recognizes the child because the Holy Spirit reveals it to him, but uses Simeon's knowledge of the Old Testament, particularly, I suspect, the book of Isaiah, in order to make the recognition possible. He's quite a contrast, really, with the disciples after the resurrection. If you go towards the end of the book of Luke, you go to Luke 24, there's this encounter between Jesus and a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize Jesus. And Jesus is not happy about that. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now those disciples had a whole lot more experience of Jesus than Simeon did. And they failed to recognize him. Why? Jesus basically says, because you don't know your Bibles. He's of course talking about the Old Testament there. The New Testament has not been written at this point. But he's essentially saying you don't know your Bibles well enough. I think Simeon was deeply studied in the Word. It's why his language echoes the language of the Old Testament. The application of this to us, of course, is there's no substitute for knowing the Word. Notice, particularly, it's the Old Testament, of course. There's no excuse for not knowing the Old Testament. You can't really understand the New Testament without some grasp of the Old Testament. Simeon grasped the fact that the Old Testament gave him that framework by which he was able to look for the Christ. He knew he was going to see him. He'd got that framework provided by his careful study of the Word. There is no substitute for knowing the Word. So that's the first thing then. Simeon recognizes the child. We could expand that to a second point though and say Simeon recognizes the personal, the significance for him, of the child. It's a remarkable reaction. Verse 29. He acknowledges God as his Lord. 
What's interesting is that the word he uses there for Lord is not the usual word. He uses a word, actually, that has strong connotations of servanthood and master. It's the kind of word that a servant would use to refer to his master. This knowledge, this recognition of the Christ, has had an immediate impact upon how he thinks about himself. He's a servant in the presence of his master. And secondly, he declares here that he's ready to die. Now, sometimes we can use the language of being ready to die very cheaply. When I first came to the United States, big fan of John Ford's movie, The Searchers. If you've not seen it, it's one of the greatest movies ever made, I think. Filmed in Monument Valley in Arizona, or the Arizona-Utah border, I think it is. And I said to my wife, you know, if I can get to Monument Valley, I can die happy. I think I got to Monument Valley in 2004. Still quite happy to be alive today. We use it very cheaply, don't we? If I could just do that, then I could die happy. We fear death. We fear death. Those of us of a certain age and generation will remember the Blue Oyster Cults, Don't Fear the Reaper song. It's kind of a cool song. Why is it cool? Because, well, we're absolutely terrified of death, really. It's trying to make a joke out of something that really scares us. Paul calls death the last enemy. Paul does not trivialize death. But Simeon here declares himself ready to die. Simeon knows that Christ brings consolation and comfort. It's the kind of language that the passage uses. To console, of course, is to help someone in a time of pain and difficulty. If you're saying, well... I was consoling that person. It's because something terrible has happened to them. They've had some bad news. They've been bereaved. And you've tried to offer them words of comfort. To console is to help somebody in a time of pain or difficulty. When Christ comes for the consolation of his people, he comes to comfort them in the midst of their difficulties. We might say that surely the most comforting thing that could be told to Simeon at this point is you're not going to die. But actually that's not the conclusion Simeon draws, is it? It's not the fact that he's not going to die that consoles him. It's the fact that he knows that death is going to be conquered through the coming of the Christ. That is the point of consolation. Here and now, Simeon sees that God is who he has promised he will be towards his people. And he knows at this point that though he himself will die, and we don't know how he dies, maybe he dies peacefully in his sleep, maybe he dies as a result of a horrible, painful illness, we don't know. Simeon doesn't know at this point, but what he does know is this. Death has been overcome. God is delivering on his promise 
to Israel. The word that he has read and studied and absorbed and prayed into his soul, that word that has given him the framework for recognizing the Christ child, has also given him his understanding of the significance of the Christ child for himself as he faces his own difficulties. What is the application to us here? Sure, it's this Christian truth has existential personal significance. I remember years and years ago in Philadelphia, it was sort of one of the greatest humanly speaking moments of my life, uh, being in the YMCA in Abington and walking across the car park and bumping into Joe Frazier. Some of you will know who he is, former heavyweight champion of the world. Pretty amazing to meet Joe Frazier. He actually shook my hand. His fingers were like the thickness of my two fingers, each one. And I got my two boys with me, and he said to me, uh, do your boys ever give you trouble? And I said, yeah, Mr. Frazier, sir, I think. And he said, well, do this to them. And he grabbed my arm, and he wrenched my arm. And I had this great big bruise on my arm. I was so proud of that bruise. Uh, I called my dad that night, and I said, Dad, what of Muhammad Ali and Carl Truman got in common. We'd both been bruised by Joe Frazier. Uh, it was an amazing moment for me. It was fun seeing one of my child, you know, somebody I'd seen on the TV in these legendary boxing fights to meet him in person in Philadelphia. But it didn't transform my life. It didn't transform my life. Being confronted with Christ is transformative for this man. It changes how he thinks about his own impending death. To recognize Christ as Savior is to acknowledge God as our Master. Not as a buddy, not as a casual acquaintance, but as a Master. I say to the students at Grove, if ever I hear any of them referring to God as the big man upstairs, which is often the way sports players refer to him, that's an instant fail in any course of mine they're taking. I don't care how good their papers are, they're done. God is not a buddy. God is transcendent and glorious. To recognize Christ as Savior brings comfort. Not comfort as the world understands it, though. Not comfort because it exempts us from suffering. Christ is not some cosmic analgesic or anesthetic that means we simply don't feel pain anymore. It, it brings comfort. Christ brings comfort because he sets our temporal and our temporary suffering within the context of God's historic and eternal victory over our enemy in Christ. Death is crushed. And compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come, all that we experience now is merely a light momentary affliction. That is not to say that it feels like a light momentary affliction at the time. But at the end of time, that is what we will see it as. There's a reason, I think, when you look at, uh, if you look at uh, the structure of the great liturgies of the church throughout history, the evening liturgy in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, in the Anglican Church, always ends with the what they call the Nunc Dimittis, Simeon song. And the idea is that after meeting with God in worship, you're ready to die. 
or a little bit more ready than you were before you gathered. After a day of worship in Christ's presence, the ideal is we should be more reconciled to our own death than we were beforehand. Easier said than done, I know. But that doesn't mean it isn't true. Do you ever think of worship as a comfort? As worship as consolation? Because if worship is a matter of recognizing and responding to Christ, then that is what it should be. And that brings us, and that's rooted in, the third point in this passage, and much more briefly, Simeon recognizes the wider significance of the child. This child isn't just coming for Simeon. He isn't primarily coming for Simeon. He's coming for God's people, of which Simeon is a part. Here in the coming of the Christ are the fulfillment of God's purposes for his people, both Jew and, as the New Testament moves on, Gentile as well. That note of light to the Gentiles we find struck in the Old Testament will become a real, expansive reality in the New. And against this cosmic backdrop, Simeon's own life fades in importance. Simeon, if you like, we might say this. He knows that he's cared for in particular because the child reveals and enacts the Lord's love and care for all his people in general. It's that general care of God, that general love of God for his people that means Simeon can be confident that he is covered by it too. And yet there is Just a little dark note here as well, isn't there? When Simeon speaks to Mary, he comments that she's set for the rising, that Christ is set for the rising and falling of many. Simeon knows that Christ will be an offence to those who don't recognise him or recognise him but refuse his authority. And he notes that Mary herself will suffer pain as she sees her son die on the cross. If you've ever been to to Rome, if you visit St. Peter's, look at the great artwork there. Just beyond the entrance on the right is uh, Michelangelo's famous Pieta. He carved it, I think, when he was 24. I was not creating world-class pieces of art when I was 24. And it's Mary cradling the Christ in her arms. What's interesting and mysterious about the statue is this, that the Mary in the statue, the Christ, is clearly a man in his 30s. Mary's a young woman. She looks like a teenager. And art historians have wrestled with, what was Michelangelo up to here? Is he making a mistake? Did he not know his scripture? One of the most compelling interpretations I've read is this, Michelangelo actually has this passage in mind when he did that sculpture. That he wanted to bring out the fact that the young mother already knew what she would be facing in coming years. Think about the pain of Mary. When Mary gazes upon Christ dying on the cross, she doesn't just feel the pain of seeing her saviour die, she feels the pain of seeing her son die as well. There's a dark note here pointing to the fact that the path of Christ himself 
will not be an easy one. And we might say, going back to that rising and falling of many, the coming of Christ is not unmitigated good news for everybody. For some it is bad news. For those who do not recognize him. How might we apply that last point? Well, if the coming of Christ needs to be understood in the context of the Old Testament, it also needs to be understood in the context of the New. As Simeon recognized the child as fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, so he also knew that his birth was inseparable from the future suffering, which, of course, Isaiah had predicted would be Christ's lot. And the coming of the Christ presents a challenge to all of us to face his claims. When we think about Christ, will we rise or will we fall? Will we acknowledge him as God's sole appointed answer to the human problem of rebellion against God and of the reality, the impending reality of our own mortality and call on him as master? Or will we refuse to recognize him and fall? Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we praise you for the coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the amazing testimony of Simeon to the power, to the potency, to the significance of the coming of the Christ child. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in this coming year, as we read your word, as we hear it proclaimed, we might time and time again turn in faith and repentance to your Son, that we might rise, might rise to glory. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.